We all await our blessed hope, the rapture of the church. We'll learn more about that today. The Bible tells us that there is coming a day when millions of people will be evacuated from this world in a moment. It will be a time of chaos never before experienced in this earth. Those of us who are watching what is happening in the world today believe that the time for that event is drawing near. The event that I'm describing is what the Bible calls the rapture. Welcome to Understanding the Times Radio with Jan Markell. Radio for the Remnant, brought to you by Olive Tree Ministries. Today, Pastor Mark Henry sits in for Jan, who will be back in a couple of weeks. We hear today from Mondo Gonzalez from our sister ministry, Prophecy Watchers, as the two discuss the imminent appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the rapture of the church. Here is today's programming. The believer today, right now, as we do this podcast, <laughs> you are to be looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. We're living in days that are so indicative of what the end time speaks about. That's right. How close are we then? The rapture could happen today. The rapture could happen today. It can come at any time. Friends, remember what Jesus said. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and will take you. Notice those words, take you to myself, that where I am there, you may be also. Well, welcome to Understanding the Times Radio. I'm Mark Henry, Pastor Revive Church in the Twin Cities, filling in for Jan Markell. She's going to be taking a couple of weeks off. She sends her best to you. We're looking forward to her return. Today, we're going to be talking about the rapture, and I've brought in our good friend, Mondo Gonzalez. Mondo, welcome to Understanding the Times. It is great to be here, Mark. Hey, let's talk about the rapture over this next hour we got together, and there's a couple of questions I just want to make sure that we zero in on, and that is, is the rapture biblical? What view is right? Because there's different views about the rapture, there's different views on the millennial kingdom, and there's some complexities to that, but I think you and I can find some clarity. In fact, Mondo, Jesus ends up rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 16 because they're trying to test him and they're asking for a sign. And he tells them, he says, you can predict the weather, what it's going to be like tomorrow in the evening and the morning, you can predict the weather. But how about this? Listen to these words. Do you now know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? So there's an expectation that Jesus had, am I right? That they should be able to figure out the days in which they're living and honor God in it. Absolutely. I think that's a great parallel to how he spent so much time as it relates to the last few weeks of his life, giving some final messages and sermons. We see that in Luke 17, as well as in the Olivet Discourse itself, because they were curious. We see that in Acts chapter 1. Are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel? And so I think Jesus wanted to lay a general framework, but yet, of course, as we know, he doesn't give an exact date of his return, but he does want us to know you think about all of the prophets of the Old Testament, it doesn't matter if you're talking the major prophets, the minor prophets, all of them end with this glorious future that God has for ethnic Israel. And then, of course, the church coming into play. I mean, all of these things come together in a unique way. Well, the rapture is under attack, that's for sure. And many are asking the question, is it even biblical? Greg Kokel from Talbot Seminary, Stand to Reason, is his podcast. And he's asked a question from one of his friends, is the rapture biblical, since she couldn't find it? Let's listen to this, and I want you to respond to it. Let me explain why I do not hold to the rapture view. Okay. And that is, um, the, 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 it's so ironic the way you put it. I couldn't find it in the Bible. This is 
principally the reason I began to question it, because I had, uh, I think what what was put to me once is if you didn't have the idea of the secret snatching away of Christians from the earth some years before Jesus visibly returned, if you didn't have that in your mind already to read into the text, would you draw that conclusion from the text itself? And my answer was no, I can't think of any passage in the Bible that would that would suggest that idea to me. Is the rapture in the Bible? That's the first question I've got for you. I would like to address first the phrase that he uses, this secret rapture. It's interesting that you and I, I mean, we hang out and we at least dialogue with many people in the pre-trib camp, but I've never heard a pre-trib person say that this is a secret rapture somewhere. And what you see oftentimes it's used as a pejorative term by those that don't hold it. But I don't believe in a secret rapture in that regard as if you have to be some initiate, like a Gnostic kind of idea into this doctrine. Secondly, he was maybe a little bit unfair because when we think about theology, the doctrine of the rapture, the word rapture is very clearly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Now, it's not in the English. In the English, it'll say caught up. The Greek word is harpazo. But in the Latin, it comes from rapimer, which is clearly one of the derivations of the root for the word rapturo, which again is the Latin version. So many times a lot of our English words are taken from Latin and not necessarily from the Bible itself or the Greek. But we say often the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but yet we understand the concepts are there. And so in the same way, when he says, I can't find in the Bible, well, if you do read Latin, you will find it in 1 Thessalonians 4. It is there. And for sure, the concept is there. In fact, one of the things I always point out to people in Ephesians chapter 3 and chapter 4, it describes there how the church is a mystery in the Old Testament. And since the church is a mystery in the Old Testament, I often have people say, well, I don't see the rapture in the Old Testament. Well, you're not going to see it in the Old Testament. The church isn't there. The church is a mystery itself. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Behold, I tell you, a mystery shall not all sleep, but shall all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. And so it's not like you and I are creating something here, or there's, and I like the way you said it, we're not coming up with a Gnostic theological concept and putting it into the scriptures. The scriptures are specifically addressing these ideas. Now, let me just ask you a question here, and I think this is really important as you start to sort through the different rapture views. Now, you and I hold to a pre-trib, pre-mill dispensational position, and so does Jan. How important is understanding the pre-mill view of a person before you even talk about the rapture? I think that's great. For example, we think about the millennium. There's no doubt in the early church, they called it various things, but Kiliism and others, where they believed in this thousand-year reign, very literally, and then later it became a little bit more figurative. But the reason why is because if you talk about the millennium, you're going to ask the question, all of us, what is going to be our hermeneutic when we come to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and we see a thousand years appear six times in that passage? It's always going to come down, is that figurative or literal? And so based on how you approach that, the premillennial position or the millennium in the context of Revelation 19, Jesus returns, and then you have a thousand years in chapter 20, a lot of that's going to dictate to how you approach the rest of Scripture as it relates to being literal or in your literal hermeneutic or your, I would say, your just straightforward hermeneutic when it comes to understanding the church and the distinction between Israel, how you approach prophecy in general. When you think about all the prophecies of Jesus' first coming, they were taken very straightforward. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. That That's not figurative for a house of bread somewhere. It's actually a little city, a literal city, even though the name means house of bread. So your millennial position often will dictate where you end up in the rapture question. 
So those three millennial views become really important. Are you pre-mill, ah-mill, or post-mill? I was recently reading an ah-mill and a post-mill theologian, and like you're saying, they're using it figuratively in Revelation chapter 20. So it's six times it says it's for a thousand years. Jesus comes back. He reigns for a thousand years. The saints are reigning with him, and they just simply say that's figurative. And then that starts influencing everything else. We've got three millennial views. What are the four rapture views that people hold to? And then I want you to define the first one there, the pre-trib view, if you would. I think historically you had, I would say the last 50 years, you had the pre-trib view, which is the view that the tribulation period is synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel, which means the tribulation period is seven years. Again, it's equivalent to the 70th week of Daniel in whole. And so the preacher position says that the rapture takes place prior to the seven-year tribulation or prior to the 70th week of Daniel. And then others have come along and they're like, no, the rapture happens at the midpoint of the tribulation period, roughly around the time of the abomination desolation. And therefore, the day of the Lord or the wrath of God, as it relates to the bowls and other things, happens in the second half. Then lately, and probably in the last 20 years, it's become very popular in some realms, is that you have the pre-wrath position, which this position, it's a little even ambiguous for them because they don't know exactly when the day of the Lord. They will say, no, the day of the Lord is not the full seven years. The day of the Lord is some unknown amount of time. I think they would just say probably a three-quarter position. That would be an average. They say it could happen closer to the second coming or even closer to the midpoint. But ultimately, it's a three-quarter position in there somewhere that that's when the day of the Lord begins and the wrath of God happens. And then finally, you have the post-trib position, which says that the entire tribulation, they don't necessarily need it. They don't care if it's seven years. They just believe that the rapture happens after the seven-year tribulation is completely over and the wrath of God is complete. And therefore, Jesus comes back and raptures the group. So we kind of come up and then we come right back down as it relates to the second coming. So many pre-trib theologians and pastors hold to the view that you and I do. I mean, you got Jeff Kinley and Mark Hitchcock and Tom Hughes and Billy Crone and many others. And the pre-trib view is often attacked in four ways. People will call it mystical, which we've already touched on just a little bit. A lot of people say it's escapism, it's insignificant, and it's modern. Do you hear those four things often? Can you just kind of like give a quick answer to each of them? If somebody said the pre-trib view is mystical. What would be like the one thing you would say? Yeah, I would say, no, it's not mystical. There isn't, again, some secret initiation to be involved in it. It's, I think people disagree on, is us, is it going to be observed? Is it going to be witnessed? Or is there going to be a disappearance? Even there, that's irrelevant. The fact is, it's not a secret. It's in the Bible. So we're not promoting something that requires some super special knowledge to understand it. Right. It's revealed in the scriptures. How about escapism? Is a pre-trib view just, we're just trying to avoid difficulty and hardship in our lives? See, here again, this is oftentimes what people who don't believe it make the accusations. I've never heard any pre-trib person say, hey, you know what? The world, we're going to have it wonderful. I'm going to have all my comforts. It's going to be great. And then we're out of here. And then the world comes crashing down. We know in John 16, Jesus said, I speak these words that you'd have peace in me because in this world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So we could have it bad, just like our brothers and sisters around the world in China and Pakistan, the Middle East. No one has ever said that we're just going to escape all trouble. That's not what the doctrine teaches. Exactly. And I always laugh when somebody says that. It's like, you're building a straw man. It's not mystical. It's in the Bible. It's revealed in the New Testament. It's not escapism. And it's not insignificant. Why is the pre-trib view not insignificant in your mind? Because it is in the scripture. First Thessalonians 4 and 5, and even as you referenced earlier in John 14, it's significant because we think about the promise that Jesus made, this very intimate, personal, loving promise that he has for his people in John 14. 
that I'm going away. I'm going away to my father's house, and there's a lot of things going on there. But I want to come back and receive you unto myself so that where I am, where he goes away to, which is his father's house, you can be with me. That is a very loving and endearing thing that he says to his disciples and, by extension, to the church, his bride. Absolutely. It's not insignificant. It's in the Bible. Jesus said it. And sometimes people will say, well, that's only in the New Testament. It's not in the Old Testament, so therefore it can't be true. It's like, really? Really? Jesus, as he was in the Upper Room Discourse in John 16, he says to his disciples, there's many things I want to share with you, but you're not able to handle them now. And we recognize that Revelation is progressive. The information of the Bible is progressive, and God gives us more information as we go. So it is significant. How about the attack? Some people say it's mystical, it's escapism, it's insignificant, and some just say it's a modern idea that Darby came up with. I want to play a clip from the Prophecy Pros. Jeff Kinley here is speaking and kind of addressing that issue, and I want you to respond to it. The rapture is also under attack today. I mean, people are ridiculing the rapture. Uh, there's some famous theologians that have written about it famously, uh, calling it just a fairy tale. It's sort of like, you know, left left at home alone kind of thing you know for mm. for christians and people say the rapture is a recent doctrine and so you know what we find out that's not true the rapture goes all the way back to the first century the early church fathers also back to the new testament itself we talk about that uh we talk about the fact that people say well the word rapture is not in the bible so it it can't be true right uh well guess what todd the word trinity is not in the bible mm -hmm. uh the word missions is not in the bible christmas easter yeah. incarnation in fact the word bible is not even in the bible that's true so words that we use to describe doctrines in scripture are simply ways to help us remember uh, what they're all about so is a pre-tribulational view something we've just come up with in the last 200 years this is something that I talk often with other authors, because I get to interview a lot of people, it's wonderful, is that this is a myth, a myth that was created by John Darby in the 1830s that just refuses to die, no matter how much evidence that we give for it. William Watson in his book, Dispensationalism Before Darby, highlights again, going back into the 16th and 17th centuries, how the framework of dispensationalism there, not the full formulated view that we have now, but the framework was certainly there. And even so, like one of the guys that's doing the best work on this is Lee Brainerd and even Dr. Tommy Ice. Now we're up to 50 to 70 different examples in the early church fathers that show that they clearly understood a rapture prior to a time of judgment and wrath and even some connections to the 70th week. It's just not true. And now I would say this, that this is based on the fact that we don't have even all of the research. What Lee's doing Lee Brainerd is looking at research into most of the Greek fathers that have never been translated into English. So he's going straight to the Greek. And so there's all of this thousands and thousands of pages of information that has still not been researched. That's what he's doing. I wish we had more people doing it because there's treasures there that he's found already. And it's simply because we haven't had enough time to research it all. You know, it always makes me smile when somebody says that to me. It's just the fact that Jesus isn't going to hold us accountable for what all of the church fathers said. He's going to hold us accountable for what he says in the scriptures. I mean, you think about Jesus over and over saying to the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, have you not read? He never says, what did your rabbis tell you? What did the Mishnah say? You know, what did the Talmud say? He never says that to him. He says, what did the scriptures say? It's always back ultimately to the text. And if you think about the reformers, isn't that the big issue in the Reformation? Sola Scriptura, that the scripture is the final authority for faith and practice, not the traditions of people. And granted, you look at all the work that you just cited, we do see people that held that. And I do appreciate the way you articulated that. It wasn't as clearly defined. There weren't the books on it like you and I enjoy today. And that's really a blessing that we have today. And it shouldn't surprise us because Revelation is progressive. The information that God gives us in Genesis chapter 1 isn't complete. We need all 66 books. All of that is the revelation of God, including the rapture.
You're listening to Understanding the Times Radio. I'm Mark Henry, pastor of Revive Church here in the Twin Cities, filling in for Jan Markell. She's going to be off for a couple of weeks, and she'll be back. We're looking forward to that. Today we have guest Mondo Gonzalez from Prophecy Watchers. If you haven't had a chance to go to the bookstore recently, I want to encourage you to do that. You can find us at olivetreeviews.org, olivetreeviews.org. Jan has handpicked a number of books on the subject of the rapture, which is our topic today. I think those will be a great blessing to you. Well, Dr. Steve Lemick, he's a professor at New Orleans Baptist Seminary, and he holds to a mid-trib view. So we're talking about a pre-tribulational view that Mondo you hold to, that I hold to, that Jan holds to, and how that compares to other tribulational views. He's written extensively on the subject of the mid-trib, and he's being interviewed, and he's articulating his position on the mid-trib. How would you define the rapture if someone asked you? Well, I think it's the event described in uh, in First Thessalonians 4 <laughs> uh, in particular. And uh, so the question becomes, where are you, do you locate that in the book of Revelation? And uh, pre-trib people tend to locate it in at Revelation 4.1. And that seems to me to be, and, and I'm not, again, I'm, I, I'm very, I hold the view I hold with great humility, uh, but uh, it seems to me that the problem with putting it at chapter four is it doesn't have all the events that were described in the eschatological discourse or Mount Olivet discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 and and parallel passages, uh, all those events are not described in uh, leading up to Revelation 4. So it seems to me that the better place to put it, and not all mid-tribulationists put it here, but I put it in in chapter 14. Uh, so because that that seems to fulfill all the criteria spoken of and and uh as leading up to this event uh in daniel and particularly in the in what jesus taught uh in the mount olivet discourse how would you respond to him i would certainly echo his comments that all of us need to have humility i really appreciate that because we're all loving and kind to each other but i would say that i think there's a mistake being made there or the assumption that if you have a description of the rapture somewhere, let's say First Thessalonians 4, that you're requiring all of the other aspects to be mentioned. So in the same way, if you look at First Thessalonians 4 and you compare that with what he mentioned there, Revelation 14, I'm not sure what he's reading because if you take the events of a resurrection, if you take the events of a trumpet, the voice of an archangel, Jesus coming down out of heaven into the air, those aren't clearly defined in Revelation 14, and they're not clearly defined in Revelation 4.1 either. And so I would agree that, yeah, I don't see all of those elements in Revelation 4, but that's not a sufficient argument against whether the rapture time factor would be there. Just, again, I could turn around and use his same standards in Revelation 14 and say, you're missing it there as well. So I think we just need to move beyond that and understand, as you said, that when we come up with the doctrine, whether of the rapture, we're looking at the collective. This is systematic theology where you're looking at all of the different verses. And sometimes each verse will add something that the other one doesn't. For example, you referenced in 1 Corinthians 15, the idea of the resurrection happening where Paul says, hey, here's the mystery. 
the mystery here is that there's a generation who is going to not die that's going to be changed. You don't find that necessarily in some of these other passages, but that was the mystery that was very cool that Paul said this is unknown in previous times. Exactly. And, you know, as I was listening to Dr. Lemick, I was kind of like surprised because as I read the Olivet Discourse, I see it as very Jewish. I see it's focusing in, and I don't know where your specific view is on this, but as I see verses 1 through 14, it's kind of the overview of the seven-year tribulation, and then he focuses in on the abomination of desolation, and that's to me as kind of the repeated big theme, watch out for this, Israel, watch out for this. Let me just ask you a question here. Often my mid-trib friends will say the scriptures in First Thessalonians talk about the trumpet, the last trump. Isn't that what we're seeing in the book of Revelation? And so a lot of times the connection to the trumpet judgments there. Well, how would you respond to that? Do the trumpets yeah. mentioned over in First Thessalonians as it automatically require that it's applied right there in chapter 13 of Revelation? I would say no, that we have a trumpet mentioned in not only First Corinthians 15, but also First Thessalonians 4. But in the same way, I think there is a forced use of, oh, there's a trumpet there, then that must be the last trump, the seventh trumpet of the book of Revelation. And if you look at the phraseology of the last trump, that's not the case. It could be in the sense of hypothetically, but generally when you're exegeting scripture, you would look at that and say, oh, is there a connection? But yet there's so many other reasons that just don't fit. So to try to force and say that's the deciding factor as it relates to the last trump in 1 Corinthians 15, the book of Revelation, it doesn't fit the parameters that you would have in interpreting Scripture. Yeah, anytime you're going through the Scriptures and you see a word, you got to look at it in its immediate context, and then you got to look at it in the broader context as you organize it in systematic theology. But salvation isn't always used the same way. For example, there's salvation from eternal damnation. We pick up on that. But 1 Timothy chapter 4, it talks about being saved from false doctrine. If Timothy preached the Scriptures, if he guarded himself, he would save himself and others from the deception of that day. So again, context is really important. You know, when you think about that last Trump, someone asked me the other day about that, and I was like, well, President Trump was the last Trump president, maybe. But just because he's the last Trump, you just can't parallel these things. Just because something's mentioned here doesn't mean it's automatically parallels. So let me ask you this. Why would you choose a pre-tribulational view over a mid-trib view? One of the reasons you see this for the mid-trib and the pre-wrath, which we'll discuss, is in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, I think that they base a lot of it on what they see is, I would say, the straightforward. It's a misinterpretation or a misunderstanding of Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, where in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, hey, I want to write to you about our gathering together to the Lord, which clearly that's the rapture. It's the same language, gathering. But then he goes on in verse 2, and he talks about as if the day of the Lord has come, that and then verse 3, but that day will not be here, not be present unless the apostasy and the man of sin is revealed. So I think what happens is they look at the man of sin and the apostasy being revealed, and they say, oh, see, it says there that those two things will happen before the rapture. And you're like, well, that's not what it says. If you look in those passages, the word before doesn't appear. It's something that's read into it, and it's the same problem that you'd have with the pre-wrath. But in my mind, when you look at the context there, the context switches from the idea of the rapture in general, which it, certainly we would say precedes the day of the Lord, but it precedes the day of the Lord in the text itself. Verse 1 is the rapture. Verse 2, he says, let's talk about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is the seven-year tribulation. And the day of the Lord cannot be here because the first events of the day of the Lord that happen inside the seven-year tribulation is the apostasy and the man of sin showing up. So when you look at Robert Thomas, if you look at his commentaries on 2 Thessalonians 2, he has nailed this down so clearly 
there and also in the evidence for the rapture book. So in that sense, if we understand that, their whole concept falls down. Plus, I would say as well that for them, they see the day of the Lord as happening and the great tribulation as happening in the second half. But yet in Daniel chapter 12 and Daniel 7, Daniel 12 especially, it talks about that the day of the Lord, the tribulation, there's a great tribulation coming upon the whole earth, and then a resurrection happens. So if we're saved in the mid-trib, if we're raptured, but what you see later in Daniel 7 is all of these saints being persecuted and tormented, and you're like, well, wait a minute. That's why a post-trib people, they use it. So I think it's just inconsistent when you look at the overall evidence. Yeah, it seems to be inconsistent to me. That's the reason I'm pre-trib and not mid-trib. Number one is God's going to deliver us from the wrath that is to come. When is that wrath? And the day of the Lord, as you described, I think it includes all the seven years there. And then secondly, you know, the argument that the last trump in First Thessalonians has to parallel Revelation 13. And that, again, just because Paul uses it here doesn't mean there's got to be something that connects it, and it just doesn't seem to be consistent with that. And then thirdly, for me, if the rapture is imminent, there's a whole series of things that are going to happen during the tribulation, that first three and a half years that are all signs to Israel that we should be looking for instead. If you were talking to a mid-trib friend and he said, give me your strongest argument why I should be pre-trib, what would you say to him? I probably would have to lay the foundation for the 70 weeks of Daniel. I think the 70th week of Daniel being that full 2,520 days, the distinction between Israel and the church, and also a literal hermeneutic. I think, too, that when you look at, and this works again for maybe a criticism of the pre-wrath position, is that in Luke 17, it talks about the day of the Lord. It talks about Noah. It talks about Lot. It talks about a rescue happening prior to that day of trouble. You see this similar in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. But here's the point, that both of those passages speak about life being relatively normal. They're marrying. They're given in marriage. They're building. They're planting. And so for them to interpret that, they're going to say, oh, well, that happens in the first half of the tribulation. And you're like, in my mind, if you read Revelation 6, you know, 1 through 17, a quarter of the world's dead. You have famine. You have pestilence. So to me, there's no way that the first half is relatively normal living at all. So the idea that the rescue happens in a time of normal living has to be prior to the beginning of the opening of the first seal because— the first half is nothing but trouble. If you compare, and I did this at the pre-trib conference, where if you just take all the descriptions of Matthew 24 and then even Revelation 6, just chapter 6, it's horrible. It's beyond imagination, the trouble, and then it even gets worse. So to put the rapture at the mid-trib point and to say that there was something that relative peace and harmony was in the first half just does not fit. You're absolutely right. I mean, when you read about the apocalypse of the four horses and all, I mean, it's just devastating what happens on the earth. Well, when we come back, we'll be considering the pre-wrath rapture, the three-quarter rapture and the post-trib rapture view with our guest, Mondo Gonzalez. All this and more coming up on Understanding the Times Radio. So when will the rapture not happen? See, by, by, by the way of elimination, you, you probably will guess when it will. First of all, it will not happen when you think it will happen. Again, in, therefore you also know, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It will not happen on the day that people say it will. First Thessalonians 5, we read it concerning the time of the season, therefore 
ladies and gentlemen, you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Welcome back to Understanding the Times Radio. I'm Mark Henry, Pastor Revive Church here in the Twin Cities, filling in for Jan Markell. She'll be back in a couple of weeks. Make sure you go by Olive Tree Views and look through the books there on the rapture. I think those will be a great help to you as we're reflecting on that subject today, a pre-trib rapture view and how that fits in the midst of the chaos of our day. We have as our guest here, Mondo Gonzalez from Prophecy Watchers. Mondo, I'm just sitting here thinking, we got so many great servants of Jesus, Jack Hibbs, Amir, Tom Hughes, Gary Stearman, Billy Crone, David Jeremiah, so many others who not only believe in the rapture, but a pre-trib rapture. Why is that? What I find is it comes down to a lot of understanding, again, a dispensational framework, a literal hermeneutic that brings you to understanding that the church, according to Ephesians 2, 11 through 16, is one new body of believers. It's not Israel. It's not the Gentiles. It's a new group that has been created. That's part of the mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians 3. So that I think they understand the 70th week of Daniel is something straightforward. It's about Israel. It is 100% about Israel. And then I think as well that you look at the overall cumulative evidence, the historical biblical evidence. To me, none of the views are 100% perfect without challenges. We all know that. But at the end of the day, we're going to look at all the data and we're going to look at it from a systematic theological perspective and say, which one has the best overall evidence and that ties together the best, the most logical and has the most data in the Bible. And I think that is why you have these people and God's raised them up. And it does come to hope and comfort in these days. Just like Amir said, there's this aspect. It's going to come at a point where you don't expect, which seems odd that we're not going to expect it, but yet we're told to look for the signs. We're looking for the Son of God to come in all of his glory, power, and majesty, rescue his church, exercise God's judgment upon the earth, draw Israel back during the times of the tribulation. I mean, that great passage in the Old Testament where it says they will see him whom they have pierced, and they will believe in him, and all Israel will be saved and go into the millennial kingdom. We've talked about the pre-trib view that you hold to, that I hold to, that Jan holds to, and we're comparing it to the other views. We've talked about the mid-trib. Let's talk about the three-quarter trib view here for just a second. Marv Rosenthal in the 1990s wrote a number of books on that and became very popular during those days. I was just starting out as a new pastor, started our first church, and I remember all the theological articles that I was reading through at that time, and so many were being influenced by that particular view. I have a sound clip I want you to hear, and it's David Rosenthal, Marv Rosenthal's son, and he's describing here the pre-wrath view. I like to call it the three-quarter trib view. And he's pointing to a chart. So you got to visualize this just a bit. He's pointing to a chart that represents seven years, just as we would describe. He's got the middle point there with the abomination of desolation. And then he's pointing to a year and a half after that. The last three and a half years cut in half. And he's describing that as the day of the Lord and the first three quarters of the trib just being the wrath of man and the wrath of Satan. Let's listen to this. And when does the day of the Lord take place? Right here. Cosmic disturbance, sixth seal, indicates God's wrath is about to take place. Seventh seal is opened around that scroll. Once that seventh seal is broken, the scroll can now be opened. God's judgments will rain down on the earth. But before that happens, 144,000 are sealed to live through that time period on the earth. And those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if they have died, they will be resurrected. And for those of us alive and remaining, will be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. We will not experience the wrath of God. What we will, if we are living, we will potentially live through 
this, which is the wrath of man and the wrath of Satan. So he says we're going to live through the wrath of man and the wrath of Satan. And pointing that chart, he's saying the first 75% or the three quarters of the tribulation. I thought the whole time was the wrath of God. Give me your thoughts. I wrote an in-depth article on this. It can be found on our website, prophecywatchers.com. And I sought to answer the question, does the wrath of God begin after the sixth seal, which is what this position holds? And in that article, I'm shocked, honestly, because many times the way that it's phrased, they'll phrase it as the first seal is the Antichrist, and the second, the red horse, and war and pestilence and famine and death. But you go, wait a minute. The argument is that, for example, if you read the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is asking the Lord, when are you going to judge your people? You know, he's upset. The people aren't responding. And he says, oh, don't worry, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to use Babylon to administer my wrath on Judah. And then Habakkuk kind of freaks out. What? What we see in Scripture, Isaiah 10 is another passage that God uses as Syria. So this idea that when you see the wrath of man as it relates to war, but clearly this figure, this guy in Revelation 6-2 is appearing on the scene with a bow. You do have the horseman coming, taking away peace. But it's the idea of who opens the seal. Well, two things. Number one, Jesus opens the seal in Revelation 6-2. Secondly, he's inviting a living creature, a supernatural agent, to say to the horse, come. You have Jesus all through there. You have supernatural agency, which is consistent with the rest of the book of Revelation as it relates to judgments. So to say that that's the wrath of man and God is not somehow involved, to me it misses so much of what's in the text itself. God can and does use other people, other means, to administer his wrath on his people. You see that in the Old Testament. But here, this isn't even guessing. Jesus is involved. Supernatural agents are involved. So why they maybe refuse to see that and just call it the wrath of man, and then going into Revelation 12, the wrath of Satan, Satan is given authority. We see that even in the horsemen and those there. It was granted to him. It was given to him. All those things are the same language, that the guy was given a bow and he was given a sword. By who? It was granted to him to conquer. By who? God is clearly sovereign in administering his wrath. It is the wrath of God there. Yeah, it seems to be consistent in my thinking as well. I mean, Jesus is breaking each of the seals. Each of the angels are sent out. It seems to be very clear to me, and I really appreciate what you just said, how God in the Old Testament, when he was bringing his judgment on nations, I think of Jeremiah, for example, I think it's chapter 26, where he calls Nebuchadnezzar, who's going to besiege Judah, the southern kingdom, and surround them, carrying them off into exile. He says, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. And so each of these bad guys, these bad players throughout the Old Testament, Sennacherib and so forth, God was using them to accomplish his will. So if I said to you, why do you believe a pre-trib view over this view? What would be the main point in your mind? I would say something similar as it relates to the mid-trib, and that is that when you read 1 Thessalonians 5 very clearly, and it talks about the pre-wrath position has the day of the Lord being that last quarter. The last quarter is synonymous with the wrath of God. We would say that the day of the Lord is synonymous with the entire seven years, and the entire seven years is the wrath of God. But for them, let's think about it for a moment. The day of the Lord that appears in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them. So think about this for a minute. If we are in, let's say, the midpoint of the tribulation happens, the Antichrist shows up, He's going after the Jews, no doubt, after the abomination of desolations for at least a quarter, right? At least another quarter. There's no peace and safety. Who in the world is saying peace and safety at this time where then sudden destruction come upon them? To me, that's the biggest thing. It goes back to Luke 17 and Matthew 24, 44, and seeing that you have this relatively normal living. Nobody's living relatively normal in the mid to the third quarter of the tribulation period. Nobody. So Paul says they're going to be saying peace and safety. 
I don't see that. The only time I would see peace and safety or relative planting, building, etc., is prior to the beginning of Revelation 6, verse 1 and 2. That makes sense to me as well. And as I just look at the three-quarter trib views, it just seems like they're forcing this idea. And that's the big danger we have as we're studying the Bible is forcing our ideas into it. You know, as you think about those passages and just kind of run down through them with me. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, he will deliver us from the wrath to come. Or you remember in Revelation 3.10 when he speaks to the church there, and he says, because of the word of your perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing the hour which is about to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Isn't this whole seven years, the day of the Lord, the testing, the judgment of those who dwell upon the earth? It's hard to get away from the universal language that is there. Jesus says very clearly, I'm going to keep you from the very hour of trial, not even from the trial, for the very hour of trial. It's like an extra level of distance that's coming upon the whole earth to test them. In the book of Revelation, you don't want to be an earth dweller. That's a very specific Greek phrase. So he says, This period of testing, this hour of trial is going to come upon them, but you're going to be spared from that. I'm going to keep you from that hour. I think as well as you mentioned it, not only in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, but also in chapter 5, verse 9, that we are not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation. And this comes on the heels of his whole discussion about the day of the Lord. And again, peace and safety, when they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them, which then it's in context. He's calling that the wrath of God. That's not our destiny. That destiny of the wrath of God is going to come upon them when they're saying peace and safety, not us. So we have those two passages in 110 and 59. That's the eschatological wrath that we're going to be rescued from or not destined to, which I think is different than Romans 59. That's more of an eternal wrath as it relates to salvation in general. But clearly we have this promise. Again, to me in Luke 17, you have Noah being rescued, and you have Lot being rescued, and then the day of the Lord lands, the judgment lands, whether it was Sodom and Gomorrah or the flood, that you have a group and you have people rescued prior to that. To me, those are the most powerful images that Jesus himself gave. Absolutely. You think about Lot, and he's in his house, and the people are pressing in on the door there in Genesis 19, and they're blinded by the angels, and they're still pressing in, and the wrath of God comes upon them. You're listening to Understanding the Times Radio. I'm Mark Henry pastor of Revive Church here in the Twin Cities, filling in for Jan Markell today. And our guest is Mondo Gonzalez from Prophecy Watchers. Mondo, we've talked a lot about the pre-trib view during this time. We've talked about the mid-trib. We've talked about the three-quarter trib view. Let's jump to the post-trib view. And it seems many of our friends who are pre-mill today are also post-trib in their view. Do you find that to be the most common view that people have? I would definitely say that there are those that are post-trib and just amillennial as well. But I think the group that's probably shrinking the most would be the pre-mill post-trib in some ways, because it's challenging. They have a couple verses that I think at first glance are very powerful in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31. You know, after the tribulation of those days, you see the sign of the Son of Man, Jesus' actual second coming with angels in great glory, and he sends his angels to go gather the elect. I think that verse is probably the most used, and it deserves some attention by us. Do you feel like there's a misrepresentation of the nature of the church versus the nature of the tribulation and what it's supposed to accomplish? Absolutely. I think the common thing in all the other views, apart from the pre-trib, is missing the idea that what's the purpose of the tribulation primarily, in the sense of, especially as it comes to the idea of a 70th week of Daniel, It is for Daniel 9.24. The 70 weeks are determined for the Jews, his people, Daniel's people, and the holy city. So it's going to wrap up a whole bunch of things. So when you look at the 70th week, 
this primary focus is certainly Israel. God is going to have a conversation because Romans 11, 25, all Israel will be saved. That's God's point. Jesus said in Matthew 23, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's no doubt that God wants to save Israel. He's going to save Israel. And it's going to be through the tribulation. Zechariah 13 talks about two-thirds of them perishing and one-third is going to be brought through because the ultimate point, as you referenced earlier, Zechariah 12, 10, they're going to look upon the one whom they pierced and they're going to mourn. But that is the primary focus as it relates to Israel. Of course, Revelation 3, 10 and the whole book of Revelation, it is much broader, no doubt, that it affects the whole world because God is going to judge the whole world for their rebellion and their embracing of the Antichrist. Help me try and figure this out. As I talk with my friends who are post-trib, they're always making the argument that there's only one coming of Jesus. And really, of course, you got the first advent, and we think about that as Christmas. We've got the second advent of Christ. Why is it that they merge the rapture passages with the second coming passages? I think that it's common for people to kind of, like you said earlier, a straw man argument, like, oh, you're a preacher of guy. Oh, you believe in three comings of Jesus. And you go, no, no, let's be nice about it. But what I tell people often is, and even those that would hold to any other non-position is, if I say, during Jesus' first coming, he went into the temple when he was 12 years old. And then I turn around and said, during Jesus' first coming, he died on a cross. Well, right there, you have 18 years difference. We're still talking about the event, but we're talking about in a cumulative way of his first coming. In the same way, in Luke 17, it's very clear that there Jesus uses a plural, the days of the coming of the Son of Man in a plural, and other times he uses a singular. So in the same way, I could say, during Jesus' day, he died on a cross. During Jesus' day, he was circumcised. During Jesus' day, the first coming, we have to recognize that in Scripture itself, there is a broad use. And so when we say during Jesus's second coming, which would include the rapture all the way through the seven years into his actual second coming, putting his foot on the earth, we're consistent. We're using the similar language that we could of the first coming of 33 plus years. Absolutely. I want to have you listen to a clip. This is R.C. Sproul. Now he's going to be Amil, but he describes here a post-trib view, if you will. Let me use that loosely. Those of you who are theologians out there, you're going to say that's inconsistent. But the argument is much the same, that there's only one coming of Christ and that this rapture is tied in there at the second coming. Let's listen to this. I want you to see how he interprets 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul does not say that the Christians will be caught up in the air and then stay up in the air with Jesus. The imagery here is of meeting Christ as he is returning in glory so that the Christians are participating in his victorious return to this world. It's not that he'll come so far catch up the church, and then stay there, go back to heaven until a later time. But the whole point of the imagery here echoes and reflects something that was commonplace in the contemporary world in which Paul wrote, namely the pattern and practice of the triumphal return to Rome of the Roman armies. Whenever the Roman armies would come back from a campaign, before they would enter the city of Rome, they would camp outside the city, about a mile outside the city. And there would be all of the soldiers plus all of the captives that they had brought home from the campaign. And then they would send a messenger into the Senate to announce their arrival. Remember, they carried the banners of SPQR, the Senate and the people of Rome. And that would give the time for the city planners to erect an arch of triumph, and to decorate the city 
much as we would for a ticker tape parade for conquering heroes. They would spray garlands with a sweet aroma throughout the city to cover up the smell of slaves and their odor and so on. And then at a prearranged time, a signal would be made whereby the trumpets would be blown. And that was the signal for the armies of Rome to march in triumph into the city. But before they began their march, at the single of the trumpet, everyone who was an actual citizen of Rome was invited to come outside the city to join the parade to march back in through the Arch of Triumph with the victorious army so that they participated in the victory and participated in the triumph. And I think if you see throughout Paul's writings, he frequently borrows the imagery of the Romans from this. And what I hear Paul saying is that when Jesus comes, he's going to come back to this earth with his whole church. The church will be caught up to meet him as he descends, and they will, he will continue to descend along with his whole entourage of believers. Give me your first impressions. He is taking too much of the Greco-Roman imagery, which we know there's certainly some, and there's Jewish background imagery, certainly in the New Testament. But I think he's taking too much of the Greco-Roman imagery, forcing it on the text. But also, in the post-trib idea, there's no answer and there's no room for the fulfillment of John 14, 1 through 3, where we go to the Father's house, that he's going to prepare a place for us. That's just figuratively brushed away, because in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, and they will be with Jesus forever. Well, in John 14, it says something similar. There you will be with me, with my Father, in the Father's house. So my first image is, is that's fine in a very isolated way, but it does not take into consideration other texts. You know what's interesting to me is you're looking at a passage, you're trying to interpret a passage. But if you didn't have an extensive understanding of Roman first century practices, you can't figure out that text. And I would suggest, having preached the gospel in other cultures around the world, that the Bible is written such a way, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, that it's plain enough that the average person, the average believer with the indwelling Holy Spirit can help us understand the text. I mean, I love history, but it seems like a lot of words to explain away something and to capture everybody's attention, move them away from what's being said in the text. Is that a fair analysis? I think that's an exact fair analysis. There is something about what we call, and theologians will call the perspicuity of Scripture, the clearness of Scripture. And so do we have to go run to Roman historical treaties to understand that? I don't think so. I think there's enough there in the passage clearly talking about the trump of God and Jesus himself and the rest of Scripture to provide for us an understanding so the post-trib view, the church lives through the seven years of tribulation. Two questions for you. One is, wouldn't that mean that the church is experiencing the wrath of God? And secondly, how is that contrary to the concept of the church being the recipient of grace and being delivered from all of that? I think you nailed it because the first thing is oftentimes people will say, well, no, we're going to be spared from the wrath of God. Many times it depends. They'll say, well, no, 1 Thessalonians 5.10 is still true, but Revelation 13, 7, Daniel 7, 25, and Daniel 12 all speak about massive amounts of martyrdom. The Antichrist is given authority to just annihilate the believers during the tribulation period. To me, you have a contradiction. Other times it'll be like, well, no, it's like the Egyptians. We're living in the land of Egypt. We're going to be spared. The darkness is only going to be on the Egyptians and not on the Israelites. I'm only going to kill the cows of the Egyptian and not the cows of the Christians. Well, that's a nice analogy if it was true, but that's not what you see in Daniel, and it's not what you see in Revelation. 
the believers get complete martyred. There is no separation. There is no protection if you're there the entire seven years. R.C. Sproul there said that Jesus is coming back and he's coming back with his church. Is that correct? That is correct. He is coming back with us. Revelation 19, the bride has made herself ready on white horses. We are going to be coming with him with the whole host of heaven because right in the middle of Armageddon. And then as he does, he ceases Armageddon and then he rescues Israel. There's a whole bunch of things happening at once. And then he sends the angels to gather the elect where we're gathered by Jesus himself. That's another distinction that's being made on the earth versus us going up into the air. I think it's interesting. We're gathered to the air and then we're forever with Jesus. Would you help me draw a distinction? I mean, the verses that talk about the rapture versus the verses that talk about the second coming. Am I right? Saints are supposed to be taken, whereas the wicked are taken in the second coming. The saints go to heaven in the rapture. The saints come to earth. Isn't there some clear distinctions between these two events in Scripture? There's like 10 or 15 different distinctions between the two events, which that is why there is so much misunderstanding. But to try to bring it all together, I think this is where all the other positions have a little difficulty because they don't understand, especially the poster position, the distinction about, I mean, how do you answer relative normal living or peace and safety a day before Jesus comes back at the end? There is no peace and safety during the entire tribulation. So I think this is where the poster position probably has the most difficulty, and that's why it's becoming less and less, because a lot of these things just aren't able to be answered. And again, the church is not living in peace and harmony. The whole world is incomplete. Jesus said this is the worst time since the history of the creation itself in Mark 13, which would include the flood. That's pretty amazing how bad this is going to be. One of the things that always stands out as I'm talking to my post-trib friends is the rapture is about delivering us from the wrath that is to come. And when you think about the second coming, if you merge those, the second coming is the climax of wrath, isn't it? Jesus is putting yes. the final nail in the wrath, isn't he? Absolutely. He's bringing the final elimination of Psalm 2. These guys are plotting this vain thing. They're going to make war against the Lord and his Christ. They're like, whoa. And so he's bringing the final judgment to a conclusion, which is the elimination of all wickedness and evil. Certainly it starts with the Antichrist and the false prophet. We know that. But he kills him with the breath of his mouth. And so 99% of the judgment has already occurred during the seven-year tribulation, and he's bringing the final climax to it and ending it. Mono, let me ask you a really important question, and I think a lot of people out there are asking this on a regular basis of Jan. I know they're asking me. I think they're asking you. Does this really matter? That's a great question, because does it really matter as it relates to salvation in Jesus Christ? No, I mean, R.C. Sproul's our brother in the Lord. I mean, I expect to see him in heaven. So in that sense, is it a salvation matter? Is it that important for salvation? I would say no. But there's a lot of things that are super important for the Christian life that aren't a matter of salvation itself. And so we don't want to make the mistake of saying that this isn't important. Because to me, when you look at the conversation, I know for me that I live every day in anticipation that the Lord could come back today. That brings me a lot of comfort in knowing that the Lord's going to rescue. It also motivates me to continue to try to see people rescued from the tribulation. But does that mean that somebody who is a post-tribber isn't evangelizing? No. All Scripture is important in discussion, but all Scripture isn't as it relates to some of these secondary or tertiary issues. They don't have the same level of importance as believing in Jesus Christ. But it is important, absolutely, because it's in Scripture. And as we started this whole conversation, Matthew 16 is the Pharisees were scolded for not being aware. To me, one of our favorite passages here at Prophecy Watchers is Mark 13, 37. Jesus says, what I say to you, I say to everybody, watch. That's the key. It's interesting to me as I read through the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says four times, do not be deceived, do not be deceived. 
He talks about the deception being so great that if possible, even the very elect. Jesus cared enough about these things to even warn us about deception, right? Exactly. And I think I always like to note that one of the primary characteristics of the end of the age is deception. And Jesus mentions it, but 2 Thessalonians 2, there's a great delusion. And in Revelation 12, it talks about Satan going out to deceive the nations. As we clarify these issues, as we look at the signs of the times, as we watch all these things, as Jan likes to say, the world's not falling apart, it's falling into place. And so as we do that, and as we recognize Jesus told us to watch and to be ready and to be looking for, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I mean, I know that all those things are prophesied. I'm looking for the Lord's return to where he says, I want to come back and I want to receive you to myself. Man, that is what I'm looking for. Amen. That's one of the things I always share with my friends when we start talking about these different views and the different views that they hold. When you have a clear understanding of the pre-trib view, it's driving us to look for the Lord Jesus. And if you don't hold that view, quite honestly, then you really need to be looking for the abomination of desolation. You're really looking for the Antichrist. All those other views, that's really what you're looking for. So all my friends listening out there, I would just say this, hold on to the scriptures. We are eagerly awaiting for Jesus Christ to deliver his bride to heaven. Mondo, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Friends, before we sign off, I just wanna say this to you. If you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your savior, you need to. You might feel a sense of urgency and conviction in Mondo's voice and my voice. Listen, Jesus is coming. He is gonna judge the world. And you and I have the opportunity right now, if you would just trust in Jesus Christ as Lord God and Savior, you'll have the forgiveness of sins. You're gonna have a place in heaven. You'll be able to cling to the promise that he says in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to myself. You wanna be able to hold on to these truths. So if you haven't trusted Christ, I wanna encourage you, do it today. Trust in the Lord Jesus. He died on the cross, he paid for sins, he rose again the third day. And remember this, he's coming for us. Contact us through our website, olivetreeviews.org. That's olivetreeviews.org. Call us Central Time at 763-559-4444. That's 763-559-4444. We get our mail when you write to Olive Tree Ministries and Jan Markell, Box 1452, Maple Grove, Minnesota, 55311. That's Box 1452, Maple Grove, Minnesota, 55311. All gifts are tax deductible. Be encouraged, as the psalmist says, our times are in his hands. So we know God allows all things to happen so that everything can fall into place. Say, say, say.